The Sabbath was made for man, part two. Jesus is dealing with an issue in Mark chapter two, a contemporary issue at the time of the first century. But he goes back, he evokes previous written revelation about the creation, the constitution of man, and man's responsibilities as God's creature in his image. The Sabbath was made for man. There's the evoking of previous revelation. So Jesus is going to address an issue, or isn't addressing an issue, in light of what God has already revealed for man, creation ordinance of Sabbath. There's also labor, and there's also marriage. Now, not everybody um, has embraced the doctrine of creation ordinances. I argued a little this morning for it, but I want to provide some pushback so we deal fairly with the arguments against it, openly, honestly, uh, and then hear them out and then try to respond to it. Here's what uh, a man who is now absent from the body, present with the Lord, but became my friend toward the end of his life. He has a somewhat lengthy discussion on this passage, Mark 2, 27 and 28. But he's pushing back primarily on the Sabbath as a creation ordinance. And listen to what he says. There is no command in these verses, but an argument for Sabbath keeping has been drawn from each of them, verses 27 and 28. There's no command there. Thou shalt, you know, keep the Sabbath. The argument is twofold, he says, of his those he's arguing against. First, if God at creation made the Sabbath a blessing for mankind, he certainly did not do so only to abolish it later. Okay, so he's saying, here's what those Puritans said, and and I would think the largest, larger uh, percentage of those who comment on these things throughout the history of the church. If God at creation made the Sabbath a blessing for mankind, he certainly did not do so to abolish it later. Okay. Second, when the Lord Jesus announces himself as Lord of the Sabbath, it seems unlikely to suppose that he intended to exercise his lordship over it by doing away with it. So this is what he's saying, the creation ordinance guys are saying. He goes on. The first argument implies, now watch what he does here. The first argument implies the impossibility of God later abolishing anything that he made for mankind's benefit at the creation. See what he just did there? Therefore, they're saying anything established at creation for man, God can't remove it from man. And he's going to go and say, the garden. If creation ordinances are true, then God can't remove the garden from man. Some of you have read enough up on creation ordinances how many creation ordinances do the Reformed confessional theologians argue for? Three. One is labor, another is marriage, and third is Sabbath. So I'm not going to read this quote here, but because it gets really silly. God originally created the Garden of Eden for mankind, so he can't remove it from it. God originally created birds to be enjoyed by mankind, but some are now extinct. Birds aren't creation ordinances. The first time I read that, I thought, 
brother, come on. You can, you can do better than that. So he redefines the phrase creation ordinance to include um, distinct birds. But nobody believes at creation God instituted birds as creation ordinances to be enjoyed by man or whatever. An ordinance is a distinct moral responsibility in light of God's creatorhood and our creaturehood in his in his image, labor, marriage, Sabbath. So I think his pushback is, uh, is not very uh, convincing at all. Um, no one, as far as I know, argues for creation ordinances, who argues for them, does so without identifying what those things are. Okay? He starts identifying as things that nobody else I've ever read in the history of the church would call a creation ordinance, an extinct bird. So his argument is what they call a non sequitur. If you've listened to R.C. Sproul, you've seen him write that on the board, the Latin, and then tell you what it, what it, what it means. Um, though his conclusion may follow from his premise. His premise is uh, birds, extinct birds, and the Garden of Eden are creation ordinances. Man was barred from the garden. There are are some extinct birds. Therefore, God can pull creation and ordinances from man. But the problem with it is he's front-loaded the premises with things we don't agree with. Bird, extinct birds or any, any non-extinct birds aren't, aren't creation ordinances, and the garden wasn't a creation ordinance either. So it doesn't apply. It, what it does is it puts words in other people's mouths that they don't put there themselves. Because the people that hold the creation ordinances throughout the history of the church identify them Basically as three, there are a few exceptions, but primarily as three, and none of them call birds a creation ordinance. Well, enough of that arguing with other people. Polemics is necessary, okay? Uh, we're going to take the Lord's Supper here, and so this has to, has to do something with Jesus' incarnation, sufferings, and glory, or else uh, I, have not, uh, I have not obeyed the... Uh, Requests that we read about this morning, sirs, we would see Jesus. So how do you draw a conclusion to the two lecture-slash-hopefully sermons that I've preached so far? Let me just say this. Matthew 12 last week and Mark 2 this week contain transcovenantal principles relating to the Sabbath. Both passages contain transcovenantal and I'll say transcultural principles relating to the Sabbath that was made for man at the beginning. They translate, uh, trans, they are trans, they are above uh, covenants, these principles, and cultures. They're just revealed in Scripture as principles that are to be applied in whatever the circumstance or situation we find ourselves in. I'll, con- I'll get the word in a second. The wordsmiths in the congregation are trying to help me. 
Both Matthew 12 and Mark 2 contain principles that transcend, there's the word, covenants and cultures. Now, the two primarily principles in those passages are works of mercy and works of necessity, which are lawful on the Sabbath, linking Jesus' teaching with revelation given prior to his earthly ministry. Remember how he justified Matthew 12 and Mark 2? He justified their conduct by saying, have you not read? You haven't read your Bibles, have you? There are situations in the Old Testament where we can extract a principle of either necessity or mercy and apply it in a different circumstance or situation. That's what me and my disciples are doing. We're being biblical and you're not. So that's what I mean by a, a, a transcendent principle. It goes, it can be applied in different circumstances. We live in different circumstances than Jesus did while he was on the earth. He lived under the law of the old covenant. The day appointed by God for creatures was the seventh day. He obeyed the seventh day Sabbath. But he also, now that he's ascended into heaven, he takes it into his messianic lordship and he delivers it to us as a gift with all the fingerprints of redemption accomplished on it the first day. And we have to wrestle with the same principles. There are actually three principles that our Lord teaches us during his earthly ministry. The principle of mercy, uh, the principle of necessity, and the principle of piety. So if you're asking yourself, what should I do between, between services? By the way, if we had an evening service, it'd be a lot of the easier, wouldn't it? Because I already know what I'm going to do like six hours during the day. That takes up a lot of my time. I'm going to be with God and his people, but we don't. So if you're ever sitting there going, okay, what am I going to do? By the way, if that's the way you do your Sundays, what am I going to do this afternoon? You probably already lost the battle, okay? Uh, you, you should revolve the week around the day and should have some piety, mercy, and necessity principles in your head at all times and run whatever circumstances you find yourself in through those three principles. Is this a work of piety, private or public worship? Is this a work of mercy? Somebody's in need, they need to be rushed to the hospital, somebody cut their finger, I gotta take them to the ER, uh, you know, whatever. Is this a work of necessity? Somebody's lawn's too long, long. So it's of necessity that I mow my lawn today. That's a hard one for me to conclude, by the way. Uh, it's like, nah. You could probably could have done it another day. Well, I worked too long, too many hours. Get a coal miner's hat and mow your lawn at night. You can do that, right? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, which, in the context, links the Son of Man with past revelation, Daniel 7, and leads us to the expectation that he's going to He's going to explain to us somehow, some way, what this Son of Man lordship over the Sabbath is supposed to look like. Do you remember reading the book of Acts? If you haven't, I encourage you to do that. 
But listen to the first words of the book of Acts. It has something to do with what I just said. Jesus taught in such a way while he was on the earth to lead us to the expectation that he was going to teach us something more than just his earthly ministry. In Acts chapter 1, we read the former account, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Okay, So the gospel of Luke is about the beginning of the doing and teaching of Jesus. So what would that make the book of Acts? The continuing doing and teaching of Jesus. But Jesus is no longer on the earth. If you read the book of Acts, by the time you get to halfway through chapter 1, the ascension happens. But at the beginning of the book, Luke tells us, Luke, volume 1, the gospel, it's about the beginning of the doing and teaching of Jesus. Luke, volume 2, the book of Acts, it's about the continuing acts of the risen Lord Jesus. And the Lord added to the number, added to the church, those who are saved. There's the doing of Jesus after the ascension, adding sinners. And the Lord opened her heart. Remember that in Acts chapter 16? Lydia, the Lord there is the Lord Jesus. He's still doing, but he's also still teaching. Um, this special endowment of the Spirit of Christ on the apostles of Christ that was promised by Jesus in John 14 through 16. If you haven't read it, you need to read the Gospel of John. By the way, when I was a young man seeking... I read the Gospel of John and got spooked by the resurrection because I had served enough masses as a Roman Catholic altar boy to realize, uh uh-oh, although I saw him dead every week at Mass, and if he wasn't dead, the priest killed him, this book says he's alive. Okay, so when he gave this promise in John 14 through 16 of this special ministry, endowment of the Spirit of Christ on the apostles of Christ after Jesus would ascend, part of the fulfillment of that is the Gospels, the written Gospels, the Acts, the written book of Acts, and the epistles, which end up stating the fact that he's come, the Gospels, announcing the fact that he is risen and ascended, the Acts, and explaining the entailments of this redemptive historical shift that takes place with the temple, with sacrifices, with priests, with Sabbaths. So all that to say, Jesus teaching on the Sabbath leaves us with the expectation that he will execute his lordship over the Sabbath in the future, that is, in the future from the standpoint of the resurrection and ascension in current session, during the interadvental days of the inaugurated new covenant, the days in which we live. His teaching on the Sabbath is related to antecedent or revelation prior to his ministry, and his teaching on the Sabbath is related to subsequent revelation, at least implicitly, we're left with the expectation that we need some details on how what your lordship of the Sabbath is going to look like. 
So the teaching of Jesus establishes a basis for the basic perpetuity of the Sabbath as a creation, ordinance, or institution, and yet in such a way as to expect changes in application due to the shift that take place takes place by virtue of its entrance into glory. Now that's a mouthful. What was I trying to say there? If you read the Gospels, you go, hmm, Jesus is correcting lousy Sabbath ethics based on the Old Testament. Not the lousy Sabbath ethics. Those weren't based on the Old Testament. He's using the Old Testament to correct the then-existing bad Sabbath laws that were added to the law of God. But Jesus' teaching also, if you read it, leaves you wondering, like, what does this destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up? Is that a prophecy of the destruction of the physical temple? His body? Physical body? Both? Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. I will build my church, which is his body. See how those things are all connected? Temple language terminating on our Lord's incarnate body actually extends, if you read the rest of the New Testament, it kind of goes back to the original temple, not just the Mosaic one, but the Edenic temple. But it, and then it goes and extends into the church. Temple language does. So we have Jesus making these statements. Something greater than Solomon here is here. Something greater than the temple is here, which makes us kind of scratch our head. Well, we need more information than that. Well, we got it. We don't just have the Gospels. We have the apostles under the special endowment of the Spirit of Christ, subsequent to the exaltation of Christ, in strict accordance with the promises of Christ when he was on the earth, we have the apostles equipped by Christ from heaven to do, continue to do the work of Jesus in revealing mediatorial information to man through their written documents. Have you ever thought of that? The New Testament was completed by Jesus in heaven, from heaven according to his divine nature, by virtue of the Spirit of Christ working in the apostles of Christ and producing the written documents that give us the record of Christ's coming, the record of Christ's proclamation, and the doctrinal implications of that in the subsequent uh, rest of the epistles and the book of Revelation. We need to think that way, by the way, because that's actually how it happened. And it's... Um, Helpful, I, I think, at least for me. So we have these uh, expected changes introduced by our Lord during his life uh, and earthly ministry. But these expected changes in conditions originally either grounded in creation itself or coming through the Mosaic Covenant, these expected uh, changes aren't novel to Jesus. Remember? The prophets prophesy of some changes coming that are connected with the past, but they come in the language of fulfillment. And so, since they're in the language of fulfillment, that means conditions are different and they're going to look different in their fulfillment than the explicit language of, of promise. 
Now, what does this have to do with all everything we're doing? Well, it has everything to do with it. We wouldn't be here taking the Lord's Supper unless there was a Lord's Day. And there wouldn't be a Lord's Day or a Lord's Supper unless there was an incarnate Lord. The Lord, you have killed the Lord of glory. Isn't that an odd statement? First, uh, they killed the Lord of glory. First, uh, First Corinthians chapter 2. Killed the Lord of glory. God purchased the church with his own blood. What in the world does that one mean? No one knows the hour, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father. What? I thought this was God incarnate. And how can God have blood, Acts 20, 28? And how can they kill the Lord? Why does the New Testament speak that way? Do we really confess, very God and very man, if God assumes human nature, how can God die? He could die according to the only nature that can die. If he's a two-natured redeemer, and the assumption of flesh doesn't diminish the divine nature, then when Paul says in Acts 20, 28, that God purchased the church with his own blood. It must be God the Son incarnate according to his human nature that he purchased the church with, that he shed his blood for, right? Does God have blood? Well, yes and no. God the Son incarnate had had and has blood. But God, in terms of the divine nature, is immaterial, doesn't extend into space, is neither liquid nor solid. So one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith is God the Son, the eternal Son of the eternal Father, without ceasing to be what he was and ever and always shall be as God, assumed into the unity of his person, a rational soul and a real body and united that real soul and body that was germinated by the power of God in a virgin's womb immediately to himself so that we have one person, two natures, divine, very God, human, very man, for us and for our salvation. Why does God become incarnate? Because the nature that sins, if it is to be saved, must be both punished and must merit the eternal reward of rest. Which, by the way, that's the divine symbol. That The divine rest is symbolizing a state or quality of existence for man that man can attain to through appropriate labor, meriting the eschatological life which Adam fell short of. There's one who didn't fall short of it, though, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't don't get to glory based on his merit and ours. We get to glory on no merit of ours and all merit of his. Okay, Our sanctification doesn't add to the merit of his obedience. The merit of his obedience is 
his as the last Adam as a representative for others. He's not meriting uh, eternal life uh, um, for himself as a sinner. He assumed all the essential properties of humanity except, he's like us, except sinner guilt. But he still obeys. He submits himself to the law of God, very man. He humbles himself. He's an obedient priest and king who lives unto death and then is rewarded for his obedience. All of that is for sinners. It's much bigger than just for sinners, though, because as the last Adam, he asked to uh, subdue all the enemies that came to both God and his people in light of Adam's sin. And those enemies include more than just uh, creatures created in the image of God. Powers and forces and, you know, those Pauline language in, the, in Philippians and at Ephesians. Spirits and demons and the devil himself. And he's got to overturn somehow, some way. He's got to have power and authority over the creation itself to overturn the curse. So that, you know, in Romans 8, the creation, it's almost like the creation has a neck and it's kind of protruding and the veins are popped out and it's looking for the redemption of the people of God because then it knows it's personifying creation there. As if, if, if creation were a person, it'd be saying, hurry up, sinners, get utterly redeemed. Get your bodies redeemed by Christ at the last, at the second coming. In other words, Lord, even so, Lord, uh, come, Lord Jesus, consummate the ages, resurrect your people, bring them into, into, into a glorious status so we too, the creation itself, Romans 8, will enjoy the full status of, of new creation. That, that's what Paul has the creation doing. The creation is kind of going, come on, let's get on with this program here. I'm waiting for the full redemption of the saints. That is, the redemption of their bodies. Uh, and Paul tells us, last text, then I'm done. Paul tells us this in... Uh, Philippians chapter 3, 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which, from heaven, which we, excuse me, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, so here's this coming from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming from heaven. What's he going to do? One of the things is this, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Remember, he suffered and he entered into glory. His human nature was glorified at the resurrection who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now that takes more than mere 
human power or even glorified human power. This person must be very man and very God. The power by which he's able to subdue all created things to himself, this is divine power. So the divine son who had become incarnate, who's still incarnate, will come from heaven and execute divine power that terminates on his own people that transforms us into the body of his glory so that we'll be like him, as John tells us. And that's when the creation, which is a moaning and groaning, according to Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope that this subjection to this cursed creation would be someday transformed because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For you know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So there is the creation waiting for us to be utter, fully redeemed in body. And there's us, hopefully, moaning and groaning in our current state, desiring to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, and ultimately uh, with our bodies and with our souls in the special presence of the Lord in the eternal state, in a renovated creation, the new heavens and the new earth. This has a lot to do with the Lord's Supper. The Lord assumed our nature to assume our duties, our liabilities, and our our responsibilities and liabilities in order to bring us to God, and he has done that. And the supper helps us look back, look up, and look forward. Look back, he shed his blood. He became one of us. He obeyed, he shed his blood. Look up, Lord bless it. We thank you. Look forward, even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. We're thankful, Father, for your, the written word of God. We thank you that you did not leave us to try to figure um, these things out of our own. We thank you for the information in Scripture that is absolutely crucial, absolutely essential, absolutely necessary. If we would, this side of the fall into sin, if we would be rightly related to God, There has to be more than just nature because of the fall into sin, and there is. And you've revealed your plan of renovation and of salvation and of hope and eternal life in the written word of God, Old and New Testament. We thank you for that. And within that, our Lord Jesus, who is God become man, he instituted this ordinance. He ordained it. We call it the Lord's Supper, the table of the Lord, the cup of the Lord. It is the Lord's, 
That is, the Lord Jesus is the owner of it, the institutor of it. It is a supper, has bread and wine, but it's symbolic of the incarnate one for us and for our salvation. The fact that he has come, the fact that he's in heaven for us, and the fact that he's coming again. Thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.